Chapter six of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter six. The Suite at the Plaza. How John Fenton encountered a friendly gentleman and was given the possession of his home and of the lady who appeared there in tears. There he was, therefore, alone, without a cent in his pockets, without a hat, without anything to pawn for his fare uptown in dirty brown overalls he had not even the locket to gain which he had taken so desperate a risk but worse far worse than all that he had lost his only chance of finding the girl whose picture had for four months exercised so potent an effect upon his heart he knew now from that one glance at her face that he was in love with her all that he had read into her features during his lonely hours of communion with the portrait he had seen living and charming and piquant and kissable as she paused under the lamp and now she was gone again into the night into the mystery their paths had crossed once would they cross again when he wandered along with this thought up to the bowery where at the curb beside a taxicab he saw a large well-dressed man in a shaggy overcoat and silk hat lighting a cigar instantly fenton awoke to his mission and the necessity for getting up town the octoroon and the caretaker should be notified as soon as possible of the loss of the diamonds he walked up and touched the gentleman's arm just as he was about to enter the cab before fenton could speak the man threw him an angry look see here said fenton i'm not a beggar i've just had an accident that's all and i want to get up town i haven't a cent on me the man looked him up and down through his eyeglasses then began to laugh well he said that's a new story on me what's the little game as i said fenton insisted i've got to get up to harlem where i can get some money and a hat and a pair of trousers will you give me a lift or not again the gentleman looked him over pulling his long black moustache the while his face was handsome and genial a type of the affable experienced man about town finally he laughed and said well i'll take a chance i'm only going up as far as the plaza but you can come along if you want to jump in they entered the cab and it started off uptown the stranger still eyed fenton interestedly buncoed he asked finally by this time fenton had learned discretion oh no a rather poor practical joke that's all a lot of my fool friends got me drunk my wedding day you know that's why i'm in a joyous hurry the explanation went as it had gone before and again the stranger laughed oh if that's the case he said i guess i can fix you up come up to my place and i'll give you a hat and a pair of trousers anyway make it a whole suit if you like that coat of yours is hardly fit for a marriage ceremony fenton played his part thanked the man effusively and the trip was made uptown with considerable friendly conversation the man's name he learned was sproule he was married but his wife was out of town and not expected home till tomorrow sproule had just finished up a big business deal and was off for a three months trip on another as soon as he could pack his grip at the plaza and get away he had an easy good nature a facile manner and had evidently seen much of the world 
but in spite of his jokes and glib stories fenton noticed that mr sproule had something serious on his mind was it his intended trip to south america on business why then should he keep such a sharp lookout to right and left as the cab drove rapidly up fifth avenue once when the cab was forced to stop because of a block near thirty-fourth street sproule grew visibly nervous and cursed under his breath at the plaza hotel he jumped out gave a quick look around told the chauffeur to wait and motioned to fenton to follow as he entered the elevator fenton caught in the tail of his eye a man coming into the hotel where had he seen him before as the elevator stopped at the tenth floor he placed him the man in the shepherd's plaid suit he had noticed at scheffel hall it was queer on the fifth avenue side sproule opened a door with a key he took from his pocket fenton entered with him they found themselves in the private hall of the suite already lighted and sproule led the way to a small bedroom opened a closet and took out a suit of gray tweeds and a derby hat here you are he said get into these and you can return them when you have time no hurry about it they belong to my man and i think they'll fit you well enough not much of a wedding suit but i guess the blushing bride won't care now excuse me a minute that confounded telephone bell's ringing he left fenton and walked to the end of the hall and into a parlor here his voice could be heard speaking though the words could not be distinguished fenton began to take off his overalls looking about the room with curiosity it seemed to have been used by sproule's valet a few flashy pictures had been pinned to the walls photographs of race-horses actresses and flying machines were stuck about the mirror fenton getting into the tweed trousers walked to the glass upon the dresser was a business card reading nallery mining and investment company st paul building new york he was half dressed when sproule came in looking anxious see here he said i've had an important call and i've got to get downtown in a hurry do you mind if i leave you here you can just shut the door when you're dressed i guess i can trust you fenton stared at him in amazement what leave me here all alone in your apartment a stranger sure said sproule you're all right i know faces pretty well and i'll take a chance that you're honest anyway i got to go right away i can be ready in a minute said fenton i can't wait a minute it'll be all right good-bye and cramming on his top hat and lighting a cigar sproule waved his hand and disappeared fenton left alone stood for a while in wonder then slowly finished dressing and finally looked about as he had entered the private hall the suite showed by its furnishings evidences of wealth luxury taste how could the proprietor trust him there alone it was too much for him at any rate he would leave as soon as possible before anything happened perhaps it was some clever trick to accuse him of theft or worse it looked bad he had just opened the door of the chamber to make his exit when he heard a key turn in the door to the corridor instantly he drew back almost closed the door and listened somebody came in then he heard sobbing a woman's heart-broken voice she passed into the parlor at the end of the hall the electric lights were turned on the weeping kept on continuously now rising in hysterical bursts of agony 
now falling into low convulsive sobs what was he to do leave silently unperceived but he might be caught in the act for a while he hesitated then he sat down on a chair to think suddenly he sprang up steps were coming down the hall he heard the clack of heels upon the parquetry then before he could think what to do his door was slowly opened and a woman came in still weeping caught sight of him and stood still staring her lips parted her blue eyes dewy with tears she was a lady of some thirty years tall and beautiful blonde with masses of fluffy yellow hair under an enormous white beaver hat picturesque with white plumes her mouth was curved in a tremulous bow and little white teeth sparkled deliciously as she stood there framed in the opening of the door all in white broadcloth touched at the neck and wrists with white fur she looked like some sudden delightful apparition come to haunt him but great as was his surprise hers was evidently greater forbidding for a moment her speech she stood with a smallish black leather case in her hand looking at him i beg your pardon fenton began in embarrassment but mr sproule left me here to put on these clothes he lent me who she stammered why mr sproule your husband i presume is he not my name is mrs elkhurst i don't see what you're doing here i don't understand and she backed into the hall still staring as if frightened of him he said he lived here a large gentleman with a black moustache and a red face he wore glasses oh she gave a little cry and covered her face with her hands the package she had been holding dropped to the floor he lent me this suit as by an accident i had injured mine she was sobbing again he said his wife wouldn't be back till tomorrow. where has he gone she demanded turning to him her face suddenly set hard and stern he was called away on urgent business he had a telephone call i don't know from whom without replying the lady turned ran into an adjoining chamber and fenton could hear her pulling open drawers opening and shutting doors searching here and there he waited a few minutes uncertain what to do when looking down he saw on the floor the package she had dropped the case had opened and half in and half out of it lay a string of brilliant red stones shining like hot coals of fire he bent down and was picking up the necklace when she burst out of the room disregarding fenton she walked unsteadily to the end of the hall and into the parlor he followed her awkwardly enough the necklace dangling from his hand to find her with her head on her arms sitting at a boule secretary fenton approached her with misgivings here's something you dropped he said and placed the jewels upon the table then distressed at her emotion he added can't you tell me what the matter is of course i am a stranger to you but fate seems to have led me here and perhaps it was that i might help you i wish i might do something if you could trust me she threw up her head and dashed away the tears then looked at him with her brows knitted fenton saw that she held crushed between her fingers a letter who are you she asked for a moment fenton hesitated at first his impulse was to confide in her but the events of the night had made him cautious he told him therefore only his name and business and of his meeting with sproule on the bowery the mention of the man renewed her distress 
she rose walked up and down a moment then returned to him as if decided upon something it is good of you to offer to help me she said but i am afraid my trouble is past mending you look kind and honest i believe that you have told me the truth you must believe the same of me for i am going to tell you my story you will see that i have good enough cause for tears she took the ruby necklace and sat down on a huge couch as she told her story she fingered the jewels nervously pausing to control herself from time to time as her emotions swept over her like a storm the twenty-seven drops of blood we have to pay for everything in this world everything even when we think we've paid there's more and still more i thought i had paid for this necklace paid in blood and tears but i've had to pay again and again and still it isn't paid for i wonder when it will be over and the score crossed off you have heard of kleptomania no doubt you've often smiled and thought it a polite name for common theft it isn't oh believe me it isn't it isn't a mere habit either it's a disease it's one of the hardest things in the world to cure ask any alienist all the same i have cured myself but god what a fight night and day day and night for years before i won it cost me years of struggle my sufferings have been indescribable but i persisted against all kinds of temptation but even then i knew i would never have won but for my love for a man and now but let me begin at the beginning i want you to understand my family is one of the best known and most highly respected in philadelphia i have had everything youth beauty wealth education social position you wouldn't think it possible for such a girl to go wrong would you and yet somehow it is usually just such persons who have this disease why is it i don't know some subtle perversity in human nature some complex reaction to environment well it doesn't matter psychologists seem to know little about this abnormal condition i've talked to all the authorities on nervous disorders dr mitchell dr prince everybody of any fame i've tried mall and the english authorities the salpetriere people in paris hypnotists even theosophists and christian scientists they simply don't know anything about it my own theory is that it's a form of dissociated personality a sort of dr jekyll and mr hyde duality struggling in one for the mastery perhaps it's a form of insanity i don't know nobody knows it's a curious thing kleptomania oh it's interesting enough to one outside of it i can talk about it now one of its peculiar features is that one becomes so extraordinarily sly there seems to be a sympathetic intellectual stimulus that sharpens one's faculties wonderfully one's mind has while one has the obsession a touch of genius it is like degeneracy we can scarcely tell cause from effect there's a vicious circle one can't tell whether mental keenness produces the desire to steal or the desire to steal educates one's wits the point is one becomes clever at it i know now positively how great criminals think how they plot and contrive how they stake their brains against law and order i know how they develop how they progress 
their first amateurish schemes are intricate and complicated it isn't till later in life that they achieve the more daringly simple crimes which succeed by their very audacity have you read poe's purloined letter you know the man who hid a valuable letter in plain sight that's the sort of acumen we have the best of us those who have developed a special sense for it a craft a refined cunning you hear of the arrest of ordinary shoplifters every day but my kind is seldom caught they can't be detected they are inspired by something too sapient shrewd acute well the first time let's see i was about eighteen i was visiting an old school friend in the south she had a scotch cairngorm one of those common brooches with coloured stones you can buy in any shop in edinburgh for ten shillings somehow it attracted my fancy you see it seems to be characteristic of our mania to be fascinated by objects without regard to their intrinsic value i've stolen things i'd never think of using burnt matches old newspapers toothbrushes even when the fatal impulse comes one has to steal that's all i've risked my reputation for a birch-bark napkin ring that's the way we are the cairngorm lay on ethel's dressing-table she and i were in the room with a coloured maid when neither was looking i took the brooch and hid it in my dress i waited till the maid had gone and then i asked for it the maid was accused and when she denied all knowledge of it poor girl was dismissed she had been with the family all her life wasn't it awful but it was curious how little it affected me there's some sort of moral opium it distills one doesn't care what wretchedness or injustice one inflicts oh it's hideous so it went on year after year the stealing sometimes in shops sometimes in the houses of my friends in public buildings anywhere the fit seized me i took everything my mania fancied often i threw the things away as soon as i had secured them sometimes i replaced them you have no idea what queer vagaries one has how one will wait for days weeks for a chance to act the obsession is for the time being the most important thing in one's life but there's one thing you must understand and believe it was only one particular detail that was wrong with my moral sense not a general perversion it's like paranoia it seems to have nothing to do with other parts of one's morality one can be kind pure temperate unselfish in everything else in everything that doesn't bear on this special act you're a man and you must perceive how such a thing can be haven't you known dissipated men who are generous and loyal if a man is selfish he's usually bad all over but if he is a drunkard he can still be affectionate so i hope you won't think of me then as wholly vile i stole in this freakish way because i was irresistibly impelled to but otherwise i think i was as good as any woman could be indeed knowing my fault i tried the harder to make my life better in other ways have you ever heard that sometimes when a man's shot they don't remove the bullet if it lodges in a part where there's no danger or inconvenience they let it stay and a cyst is formed around it so that it is completely surrounded and it can't poison the system 
Well, this thing seemed like that with me. It seemed to be apart from my normal moral sense. But a moral sore can't really heal like that, I suppose. It's always malignant. It has to be cut out, or it grows. Well, this trait did grow. I took more and more. I became more cunning. I have never been caught or even suspected to this day. I grew bolder with every success, bolder but never reckless. Every move was thought out like a game of chess. Then came the necklace affair. That was the climax. A year ago I was in Paris with my mother. We had many acquaintances in the best circles. In the Sorbonne, in the Academy, in the Deputies, in the old noblesse of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. One of my best friends was the Contessa de Scarpi, a Roman lady of an old Italian family. She had a little necklace of rubies. Here it is. Pretty, isn't it? Yet I always think of it as twenty-seven drops of blood. That necklace I had to have. I knew I should try for it. Knew I should get it. Knew I should not be discovered in the theft. I did succeed. Here it is. Have you examined it? The stones are small, but flawless. It is exquisitely designed. Seventeenth-century workmanship. It is worth, I should say, about forty thousand dollars. But I have never worn it, scarcely even looked at it since I got it. All my pleasure was in the winning of it. It cost me nothing, I thought. Nothing? God! The cost was terrific. Listen. Because of my theft, two sisters became estranged. An ambitious and talented young naval lieutenant shot himself. Oh, he was so handsome, so splendid. A half-dozen family servants lost their places and could never find other employment. All this I knew, but I didn't care. Can you imagine it? I didn't care. It was as if I were drugged. All I thought was, the necklace is mine. You must loathe me now, but you must hear me out. I want you to know to what degradation I had fallen, how lost I was, how hopeless, how pitiful. I want you to see what I had to climb out of. I got out of the country with it. All sorts of rewards were offered for it. Numberless detectives put on the search, and I sailed for home. When I passed through the custom house, I hid it in my hair. You should have seen me look that young inspector in the eye. I had a sort of insolence. I was so sure of myself. I'm sure all great criminals must feel that sense of power. It's wonderful, exhilarating. It's like the courage of a brave soldier under fire. Nothing could possibly harm me, I was sure. It was as if I dealt in potent magic. So I got home with my mother. Poor mother, if she only knew. Strange, one can never tell the most important things in our lives to one's best friends. One lies only to those one loves. Then I met a man, the man of all the world for me, the only human being who could ever change me. Love has a strange alchemy one can't explain. Why try to explain it? One is attracted, or one is repelled in spite of oneself. Schopenhauer calls it the spirit of the race, seeking reincarnation. I prefer the poetic interpretation. For me, romance. Never mind. Anyway, I fell in love immediately, desperately. Love is a terrible thing. It took hold of me. To me, Herbert was perfect. 
all that was best and finest of manhood i thought of him almost as one thinks of the great heroes of history washington goethe alexander he was my bonny prince charlie my king could do no wrong and so as soon as i found my heart was gone i got my first real sight of my mania i saw the horrible thing it had become i felt as if i were a leper if he had found me out i would have died of shame and later when i saw that he actually loved me it was wonderful i spent night after night weeping at the impossibility of my ever marrying him for to me he was as spotlessly pure and honourable as a god and i was unworthy to be his wife so when he proposed i refused him when he wanted to know my reason i couldn't tell then he began to make love to me so ardently that i was alternately delirious with joy and tortured with horrible remorse it was unbearable one night he swept me off my feet and i accepted him oh in my heart i promised myself at the same time that i would never marry him till i had cast out the devil that was possessing me it seemed so easy at the time his strength seemed to make me strong i felt that the inspiration of his love and trust would exalt my will wait can you imagine a young man who has sown his wild oats converted and taking holy orders and feeling sure that nothing could ever tempt him again that was how i felt i felt that my love would change my whole character in a single day things aren't so easy as that in this world we have to pay always we have to pay we have to pay again and again i suppose you have never taken morphine or opium or cocaine i hope not but you must have heard what a fight it is how terribly difficult it is to stop the habit it isn't impossible though why one time i took cocaine steadily every day for two months i just had to see if my will was diseased too if i had any strength at all left in me pshaw i stopped in a day i laughed at it it was nothing but this thing was different it had grown like a monster in me i was so in its power that to keep my fingers from anything i craved well can you refrain from drinking when you're thirsty it was like that worse a thousand times worse i fought it night and day though i was determined to win for his sake i fought it as one fights a terrible nightmare for a long time i made no headway i stole things even while i was with him can you imagine anything more horrible remember how i loved him it was damnable then one day i was nearly caught i had slipped a red morocco-bound book into my muff at a house where i was calling for the first time i dropped my muff by a queer chance it fell on end and stood on the floor curiously upright he bent down to pick it up for me i was just a second too quick for him how my heart beat he would certainly have seen the book i couldn't have explained it possibly it would have ended everything so i redoubled my efforts to cure myself by sheer will i went scarcely anywhere and never alone i had pockets put in my coat and kept my hands in them i schooled myself to think every minute to be on my guard incessantly well i improved rapidly after that when i had taken nothing for six months i set the day for the wedding that was a happy time 
My only bugbear was the necklace. You've been wondering why I had not already returned it. It was impossible. Even had I been able to go abroad, I knew of no safe way of returning it. Had I sent it, it would surely have been traced. Think it over, as I did, through many a sleepless night, and you'll see how difficult it would have been. There were the customs again, the post office authorities, to suspect and examine any package, the express company's invoice. There was the danger of theft. But the Scarpies were travelling in the Far East. I didn't even know their address. The only thing I could do was to wait for my chance. I had no one to trust, no one I dared tell. After we were married, I kept the necklace hidden in a secret compartment of my jewel chest. I dreamed of it all through my honeymoon, the most delicious honeymoon any bride ever spent, except for that. That was six months ago. Now it seems six years. Ah, well, when I first met Herbert, I thought he was a broker. Everyone thinks that now, except those few that know. But after I was married, he confessed to me that he was a detective. He told me he was employed by several big corporations at a large salary to work on especially difficult or delicate cases. His value depended upon people not knowing his real occupation. Passing as a broker, he could go into the best society, and no one suspected him. It was a shock to me at first, but I got used to it. Now that I had recovered from my mania, my spirits went up sky-high. It was like getting my youth back again. I was like a young girl. How Herbert used to laugh at my spirits. I was free now to love him freely, as wildly as I wished. I let myself go. No woman was ever so proud of her husband. And I was proud of myself, too. Why shouldn't I be? I had conquered as desperate an evil as any woman ever fought. But there was still the necklace, twenty-seven drops of blood. A detective is a dangerous person to attempt to hide a thing from. I was mortally afraid he would discover my secret. We went everywhere. I had a wide acquaintance. Baltimore, Washington, New York. Herbert went with me. He seemed to like the dinners, the musicales, dances, teas, bridge parties. I was proud of him. Everybody liked him. He was a social success. He never refused an invitation unless his duties called him away. Sometimes he had to be absent for a week or so at a time, and of course owing to the nature of his profession. He could tell me nothing of his affairs. Occasionally he was unexpectedly out all night. Except for these absences and the necklace, I was gloriously happy. Herbert was still a lover more than a husband. He gave me presents often. A week ago an old Vassar friend of mine came to me with such a pathetic story. It's her private affair, and I can't tell it to you. It doesn't matter anyway, except that for a particular reason she was most anxious to make an impression at a dance in New Haven. Her whole future was at stake. She was awfully hard up. She had nothing, and asked me to help her. So I lent her a gown, gloves, and a few things like that. She was so pathetically grateful and happy that just before she left I thought of the necklace, and carried away by my sympathy I offered it to her for the dance. At first she didn't want the responsibility of it. She refused, but I could see that she was crazy to wear it. 
it was the finishing touch to her costume so i insisted and she took it away i was glad after all the necklace had caused so much suffering that it seemed to me it was right to use it for once to make someone happy last night when my husband came home i felt something was wrong you know a woman gets things i didn't feel right near him i can't express it in any other way there was some constraint about him i had never felt before i simply got something near him and it made me fearfully nervous depressed but outwardly he was the same as ever and my first impression wore off a little then when he said he had a present for me i was all right again and hated myself for thinking anything sinister the reaction carried me into high spirits i loved him more than ever i thought him the purest and the best oh how i tried to make up for my momentary injustice a present he had such an adorable way of presenting things it made them vastly more valuable i buzzed round him like a humming-bird in my delight he took a package out of his pocket and handed it to me after i had paid him in kisses i was as happily impatient as a child i snapped the string laughing tore off the paper opened the little leather case this necklace was inside my necklace which i had lent my friend a few days before twenty-seven drops of blood i suppose i must have thanked him somehow i may have kissed him again with that horrible thing in my hand women are strange creatures the most ignorant woman can become a great actress under the stress of emotion the ages have taught us to defend ourselves some maternal instinct inspires us but what i did or what i said i don't know it seems so long ago and it was only last night i think he suspected nothing i remember that i pleaded a headache and got off to my room somehow locked the door and went to bed he knocked later and said good-night girlie it comes back to me now but at the time i hardly realized it the ruby necklace my brain whirled with it it was the most horrible night i had ever spent what did it mean oh i went over and over it till i thought i should go mad had he discovered my secret had he had a similar necklace made i thought of every explanation except the right one this morning i found i couldn't stand it unless i learned the truth immediately when he left i told him i was going to visit a friend in poughkeepsie overnight he said he might be gone himself when i returned we parted as we had never parted before something horrible was between us i thought at the time that he felt it too now i know he did i took the first train to new haven on the way there a fearful thought came to me you know i told you we used to visit together well i recalled that soon after my marriage we spent a weekend with some friends in wilmington a few days afterward burglars entered the house and stole considerable jewelry and silverware nobody thought anything of it till another home was robbed in richmond shortly after we had been there then they began to call me a hoodoo and laugh at me it was a good joke for a while especially as it happened once or twice later i thought of it only as a queer coincidence now as i recalled the facts the idea grew like wildfire it burned me up i couldn't stand the suspense it seemed as if i pushed the train all the way to new haven 
I found my little friend in tears. Oh, I suppose you have guessed what I never suspected. Her house had been robbed the day after the dance, and the necklace was gone. I was the wife of a burglar, or at least my husband was the associate of burglars. The man for whom I had fought my fight, for whom I had won, the man whose love inspired me, was a criminal. You can imagine my situation. I had to comfort my friend, who was almost distracted at the loss of the necklace, and I had it in my purse all the time. I had to tell her I was sure it would be found. I had to leave her with that burden on her conscience, knowing that she would probably work her fingers off trying to make up the loss to me. How could I tell her the truth? What could I say? I could only hope some time to arrange it so that the thing might seem to be recovered. I left her with a broken heart. Well, mine was breaking, too. Then, on the way back to New York, I began to see things more plainly. My love pleaded for him. After all, was he much worse than I? He was a thief, but had not I been a thief myself for ten years? I had fought for my own salvation and won. Couldn't I fight for his and win also? My love came back in a great flood. I determined to save him. I almost rejoiced at the opportunity it would give me of showing how much I loved him. Wasn't it my duty, what a wife should do? The thought uplifted me. Nonetheless, when I entered the door here and saw all the old familiar sights, the place where I had been so happy, I couldn't help breaking down and crying. I thought it was all over forever. The secrecy, the pain, the struggle, the danger. But I nerved myself and determined to go on through with that and worse, if necessary, for Herbert's sake. And, God willing, I would win him back, as I had won myself. Well, you must have heard me crying. Do you know what stopped my tears? What was too deep, oh, far too deep for tears? On my dressing-table I found a note saying that he had left me forever. John Fenton, confronted a second time that night with a woman's broken heart, knew not what to say. Mrs. Elkhurst arose deliberately, with a hard, set face, and replaced the ruby necklace in the case. Then she shrugged her shoulders and turned to him. You understand now why I think of those stones as drops of blood. Well, what shall I do? That's the question. Of course I can arrange to have the necklace found. To say it is, without publicity, or else my friend's life will be ruined also. But what about my husband? I can't think of him as a burglar, Fenton said. It seems impossible. He was so good-natured, so refined. He had so much charm. Oh, it was precisely that which made him useful, said Mrs. Elkhurst. Of course he did none of the actual work himself. He didn't have that kind of skill. I've been thinking it over, and I've come to the conclusion that he must have merely located the jewels, or whatever they were after. Don't you see? That's why he was so willing to visit at my friends' houses. I can remember now that he used sometimes to excuse himself when we were all downstairs and run up for a handkerchief or something like that for an excuse. He was looking about. I have no doubt that he watched outside, too, while the house was being entered. Do you know any others of the gang? Fenton asked. I suspect only one, an Irishman. He came once or twice here to see Herbert, but my husband always managed to keep me away from him. 
an irishman fenton immediately thought of mangus o'shea a rough ugly-looking man with little reddish eyes and black broken teeth i think his name was nallery fenton jumped up and ran back to the room where he had changed his clothes returning with the business card he had seen on the valet's bureau he handed it to mrs elkhurst do you know anything about that he asked she looked at it and knit her brows look in the telephone book she said finally and see what the number is i think it's let's see a queer number something like wall nine 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 one i heard my husband call it up fenton picked up the telephone directory and found it wall nine one nine one he read yes i think that's it and now i remember overhearing herbert talking about some diamonds once or twice perhaps it is the headquarters of his gang i believe it will pay investigating at any rate fenton arose as if to go investigating what do you mean said mrs elkhurst are you you're not a detective she grew pale fenton narrated the incidents that had made that night for him one long extravagant adventure the tale was so incredible that he was almost ashamed to tell it but the lady's interest was keen and deep when he came to the mangus o'shea part of his story she frowned and nodded ah she said when he had finished that settles it i can see now what happened herbert and nallery or o'shea as you call him have undoubtedly been on the track of the jewels watching their chance how they ever suspected the octoroon had them i can't see but the rest is easy once having followed her and seen you they suspected that she had given them to you for safe keeping i would eliminate the cross-eyed cabman entirely he probably stumbled on to a part of the thing accidentally and was only trying for blackmail still the gang may have got hold of him too when they took you to the pigeon loft herbert stayed outside on the watch and perhaps he was given a few of the smaller stones to raise ready money upon at some pawn-shop it's the more likely because of late my husband has been complaining of being hard up i remember he said he had bought the ruby necklace on credit at the time i was too excited to wonder at that what can we do if i cannot reform my husband i can at least try to prevent his crime from being successful it seems to me i must do that there is nothing you can do that i see said fenton but as for me i am determined to follow them up right away i doubt if i can do anything against them for the gang must be clever and desperate but i can at least try now i am into this plot i am going to do what i can the first thing is to get hold of the octoroon and report he took up the telephone and called up the king william hotel no miss green was registered there that puzzled and worried him but he got after much talk with information the number of the flint flat at one hundred and forty-sixth street though there was no answer to the phone he hung up the receiver in disgust well he said i must get downtown immediately what shall you do i am going to my mother in philadelphia the first thing in the morning she said i am going to tell her everything i hope it will not break her heart but oh i am so lonely after fenton had pressed her hand bid her good-bye and walked to the door he turned back to look at her she was sitting at the table with her head bowed in her hands sobbing End of chapter six